Uh, you're going to want your Bibles open to uh, the next to last book of the New Testament, the book of Jude, a tiny little book, just 25 verses. So either your own paper Bibles, Lord willing, you have those with you, or pull up on your phone or your app. Uh, we're going to read a good chunk of it, but then there's a bunch of it that we're just going to run through, and you'll want to have your Bibles with you. Uh, so it's really encouraging to start a new year and to talk about where we're headed. And uh, just so you know, we're taking a break for a couple weeks uh, from our study in the Gospel of John, and we do this from time to time to just have a family talk, talk about where God is leading us in the moment that we're in uh, and the mission that we're, that we're on. So that's what we're going to be doing for the next couple weekends. Uh, so I'm going to start this way by inviting you to join me in the library, uh, and we're going to look at a couple books. Uh, 23 years ago, back in 2001, Callum Brown released this book, The Death of Christian Britain. Brown is a sociologist and a historian. He teaches at the University of Glasgow. And the focus of this book was on the most rapid decline of the Christian faith in Britain from the years 1960 up to 2000. And in his introduction, he says this, it took several centuries in what historians used to call the Dark Ages to convert Britain to Christianity, but it has taken less than 40 years for the country to forsake it. And his conclusion in this book is this. What emerges is a story not merely of church decline, but of the end of Christianity as a means by which men and women as individuals construct their identities and their sense of self. Okay, fast forward 23 years later. In 2023, Jim Davis and Michael Green released the book, The Great Dechurching, and they focused on the U.S., and their thesis and their conclusions are eerily similar to those of Callum Brown 23 years earlier. And they say this, in the United States, we're currently experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country, as tens of millions of formerly regular church Christian worshipers nationwide have decided they no longer desire to attend church at all. The fastest decline in religious affiliation in the history of the U.S., that 25-year window from 1995 up to 2020, but written from a bit of a hopeful tone. Now, you might be saying to me, well, that's quite interesting, but pastor, uh, if you haven't noticed, we don't live in either the U.S. or the U.K., so what does this have to do with us? And it's also interesting that Canada has always been sort of halfway between those two. We have never been as secular or as liberal or as progressive, spiritually speaking, as Western Europe has been, but we certainly are not as conservative and as actively involved in spiritual stuff as they are south of the border. So somewhere in between the two is where Canada falls. So enter Sam Reimer. Uh, Sam is a religious sociologist. He also happens to be a Mennonite brethren. Uh, he teaches at Crandall University in Moncton, New Brunswick. And earlier last year, he released a book called Caught in the Current with the subtitle British and Canadian Evangelicals, and here's the key phrase, in an age of self-spirituality, self-spirituality. And the primary thesis of Reimer's book is that even for people who claim to be evangelical Christians, there has been a clear shift in the locus of authority, and he documents what he calls a turn away from life lived in terms of external or objective roles, duties, and obligations, and a turn towards life lived by reference to one's own subjective experience. Simply put, the center of authority has shifted. That a generation ago, and certainly two generations ago, God, religion, faith, family, 
and church. The primary institutions, also family, school, and even most of our governments would affirm the Judeo-Christian values upon which the country is built upon. In fact, if you can find an old $5 bill laying around somewhere and you flip it to the backside, you might remember that hockey player on the back of that $5 bill. But you may never have noticed in the fine print around that is a tiny poem written in fine print. It is called The Sweater. And the hockey player is saying, in the days of my childhood, they were spent in three locations, the school, the church, and the hockey arena. Now, we know in modern Canada that two of those remain, school and the hockey arena, but the church is long gone, right? Simply put, Reimer says authority has moved. The center of authority has shifted to the internal self. And he goes on to say, this is a cultural internalization as people understand themselves now as autonomous humans with individual rights. The individual person is free to create their own identity, unhampered by the expectations of family, institutions, or society. You do you. So, enough time in the library for today, okay? A couple times a year, we step away from our primary study, our regular diet of verse-by-verse through books of the Bible. So if you happen to be visiting with us this weekend, you need to know that this is not a normal weekend for us. We're tracking through the Gospel of John, literally verse-by-verse. But to take time to step and look at the cultural issues, what our church is facing, uh, a bit of a family talk to lift our eyes up out of the specifics of a particular text and ask the Lord what is happening in the culture around us and and the impact on us as a people and as a church. Uh, First Chronicles is one of my favorite references to a group of men. It is David's mighty men, men who gathered around him as they were trying to build a nation. And there are some from each of the 12 tribes, but there's an interesting comment in chapter 12, verse 32, of the men of Issachar. And it says, of these men, they understood their times and they knew what Israel should do. And quite an interesting and provocative thought. Do we understand our times? And so at the start of a new calendar year, it's a good time for talks like this. Uh, not simply because the uh, calendar pages turn. There's nothing really special about that. Move from December to January. But there is a mental shift that somehow happens over the holiday season. And I think it's partly because life just slows down a bit over the holidays and we have time to think and ponder and maybe spend with people that we love, etc. But the regular routines of life, uh, schools, of course, are out. And for many people, work slows down. It's not uncommon in December to have somebody say to you, I'll just get back to you in the new year, and we don't really worry about it. Whether it's any other time of the year, you're like, get back to me tomorrow, please. And so we take a bit of a break. And in that pause, and then in the re-entry into the pace of life, many people make what we call the so-called New Year's resolutions, right? We're going to change our life. And so it's a good time for us to talk about the macro call in our lives, and the times that we live in. Secondly, and Lord willing, we hope to be breaking ground on a new sanctuary this spring out back here on this piece of property. And if construction goes well, we are told that we could be worshiping in that new sanctuary two years from now, January of of 2026. And the opportunity to welcome potentially double our capacity. And the question that I am beginning to pray into is this. How many of those seats in that new sanctuary will be filled with people who are currently far from God? Who are currently outside the hearing of the gospel? 
And as I reflect on where our culture is headed, I can't think of a more relevant book of scripture for our times than that tiny little book at the end of the New Testament, the book of Jude, just 25 short verses. It's packed with a call to action. The book calls us to contend for the faith that has been handed down. And so this weekend and next weekend, I want to press into our call as a church and our call as a people, and what we're titling it is Contending as Exiles from the margins of people who are not truly at home in this world as it is today, that we contend with a particular hope and with a particular tone. So we're going to read a good chunk of this, and then we'll scan through the rest. So the first four verses go like this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother to James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Okay, now drop down to verse 17. But you must remember, beloved... The predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And amen and amen. So we're going to do a quick run through this entire book. We're going to frame it around these three themes, the attack and the defense and the guarantee. We're going to spend most of our time on what Jude calls the attack on the church. Briefly, the defense, the guarantee, we'll circle back around to those next weekend. But Jude was written to an unnamed group of believers, not a local church that we know of or their location. He simply identifies them with three powerful words in verse 1. He is writing to them who are called by God, beloved by God, and kept for or by Jesus or unto Jesus. Three powerful words. You are called, you are loved, and you are kept. And just those three words alone in the introduction, which actually come up again at the end of the book, as you heard it read, those three words should shoot some encouragement into our souls. And Jude writes them to remind them of this key thought, that there's a battle being fought over your life, and you have to engage that battle. Verse 3, I was about to write to you about our common salvation, but I am compelled to write a different letter. And without wasting any time, Jude dives right into this critical topic of the attack on Orthodox Christian faith and on the church. And he says, I am calling you to contend. Contend is 
Not a word that is incredibly common in our day-to-day language, although we still use it to some degree or another, but it's not that familiar to us. It means simply to make an argument for, to fight for or against something, to exert your position. Uh, as I was thinking about it this week, I think uh, the most common place where we still hear the word contend or a contender is in the world of athletics. Uh, So for an example, we know the Super Bowl 58 is on its way on February 11th, uh, and we know that earlier today there were still 14 teams left in the playoffs, but come the end of the day, three weeks from now, it will be down to just two teams contending for the title. Contending, and we sometimes call athletes contenders. In fact, that word contend is an extremely strong word. We get the English word agony, agonize, anguish from the same Greek root, and it's translated in a lot of different ways, fight, struggle, wrestle. In one translation, it literally translates in this way, every athlete. That word athlete is literally this word agonize. Every contender, every agonizer, every wrestler, it could be translated, or every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it for a perishable wreath. Now, you know this to be true, whether you yourself are a sportsman or you have watched sports, whether it is the Tour de France, a marathon runner, a hockey player, a football player, you know if they are going to win the title, that they, if they're going to rise to the top of the pack, They agonize, they contend, they beat their body to make it their slave so that they can win the prize. They contend for what they want to reach. Jude says we must contend for the faith. The faith passed down to us in what we would call in our day orthodox, historic Christianity. Now don't let that word orthodox scare you because that simple word orthodoxy, all it means is right belief. Orthodoxy, right belief believing. And in the battle in every generation has been this battle for orthodoxy. And there is an inevitable theological drift that sets in if we are not on our guard. In churches, in denominations, and in our individual lives, we tend toward the path of least resistance. Why? Because who wants to fight? Who wants to always be in argument? So the easiest thing to do is just simply to back away from your long-held truths. Verse 4, he says, certain people have slipped in. They've crept in. You see the deception. You see the hidden agenda. And verse 4, he says, we know four things about them. Number one, they were predicted long ago. Number two, they're ungodly. They don't actually love God and the word and the church. Number three, they're grace abusers. They, they turn the grace of God into a license to sin. And in other words, what they're saying is, isn't the grace of God good? Uh, The more we sin, the more God's grace gets poured out. The better God looks. So the the way to make God look really good is just to to continue to sin all you can possibly sin because then God gets to pour out more grace, so go on and keep sinning. Grace abusing. And number four, they deny that Jesus Christ is actually the master and Lord. He is not the sovereign. He is not sovereign over the universe, and he's certainly not sovereign over my life. These four things. Now, there are 12 verses in the middle that we didn't read. And hopefully you've got a a phone or your own paper Bible or some device open. We're going to scan through them really quickly and look at this attack that Paul describes, or Paul Jude describes, rather. Verse 5 to 7, he gives them three warnings from history. Here's what happens when we lose our grasp on orthodoxy. When we forsake the knowledge of God, the word of God, or the ways of God. And he says this, remember the children of Israel. Remember how God rescued them out of Egypt, but then later they died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Remember the fallen angels. 
Remember, a third of them swept away with Lucifer, awaiting now their final judgment. Remember the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the first poster child city of the sexual revolution. What happens in Sodom stays in Sodom until their depravity got so bad that God wiped them out. And if you read the historic text, you know that godly Lot was nearly swept away. He was literally snatched from the fire, if you will. And so what Jude is basically saying is this in rapid fire mode, reminding us that a God of holiness will not be mocked. Galatians 6 puts it this way, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. We were talking about this before the new year, that there comes a time when God's mercy meets God's wrath. There's this line, this invisible line that is drawn somewhere in the spiritual realm where God's mercy, God's grace, and eventually you come up to that crossing point where you cross into God's wrath. There comes a point in time where God says, if you want it that way, I will give you over to yourself. I'll let you go the path you want. When he lifts his hand of mercy and favor and grace, there's a name in the Old Testament, a name that, oh God forbid, that it would ever be spoken of our lives, the name Ichabod. It literally means God has forsaken us or the glory has departed, Ichabod. Oh, may that never be spoken over our lives. Verse 8 articulates four traits of this Antichrist mind. They're driven along by their own thoughts and dreams. In other words, there's no external source of authority. They defile the flesh. We're not told how, it just leaves it wide open. There's apparently no sensual pursuit or appetite that they've not indulged. They reject authority, pretty straightforward. And finally, they blaspheme the holy, the name of God, the work of God, the people of God. There's no fear in their lives. They have, they have no fear of deconstructing the foundations of historic faith. They just go at it. Along with Nietzsche, they would say, God is dead because we've killed him and we don't really care. And then Judah's on a rant. Verse 10 onwards, he's like, they're like unreasoning animals leading to self-destructive lives. They're like the murderous jealousy of Cain when he killed his brother Abel. They're like the mercenary selling out of God's people of Balaam and the talking donkey, not Shrek, but Balaam. Like the anti-authoritarian rebellion of Korah who refused to follow God's appointed leader Moses. Verse 12 to 13, boom, 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 boom. Like six more word pictures. Hidden reefs upon which you would shipwreck your lives. Shepherds who feed themselves. Waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves of the sea, wandering stars. You dare not set your compass or take your cues from them. You're like, <gasps> slow down, Jude. And finally, one last summary statement. Verse 16. They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, their loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. And what Jude is reminding us is that in every generation, there have been and there will be those who attack the historic faith of the church. And while we don't know the specific issues, Jude doesn't tell us what were the specifics in this text, the names and the details that Jude refers to, we do hear his impassioned cry, I have found it necessary to write appealing to you that you would contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered. In verse 17 to 19, which we did read, you shouldn't be surprised. It was predicted long ago. The Old Testament, Jesus, and of course the New Testament apostles. 
And so what are the people of God to do in the face of a full-on attack of historic faith of the church? And Jude calls us to contend, to struggle, to wrestle, to fight, to join the resistance. And in verse 20 to 23, he talks about the defense. And we could put it either way. We could say our defense or flip it the other way, our offense. How do we respond to this attack? We, we go on the defensive, we go on the offensive. You build yourself up in the faith, you pray in the power of the Spirit, you keep yourselves in the love of God, you wait patiently for the mercy of God to be revealed, you show mercy to those who doubt, you run into the furnace to snatch them out of the fire, and you guard your own heart with godly fear lest you get sucked into the deception yourself. This is our strategy, Jude says. And Douglas Moo in his commentary says this, one single solution lies at the heart of this text. One single solution, maintain the true Christian faith as it has been handed down from Christ and the apostles. So next weekend, we're going to talk a little bit more about the implications, applications to these verses. How we can contend well with a spirit of grace graciousness and mercy and holy fear, that our posture and our tone matters in a climate of rapid decline of the church, and how we can and must create islands of sanity in the midst of the cultural stream and chaos around us, uh, because the overall story of Scripture would agree with Jude's thesis that there is a battle being fought over our lives, and we've got to engage the battle. We would agree. The Scriptures agree. If you've read the book from cover to cover, you know that this is the story. You know that it began, Revelation 12 tells us, the first battle was a battle in heaven. That the most beautiful of the angels named Lucifer uh, comes up with a scheme to take power from the Most High, to grab the throne. And a third of the angels were defeated along with him and cast down to the earth, and they have ever since been wreaking havoc on the earth, on human relationships. As Jesus said, there is an enemy, and he comes seeking to steal and kill and destroy. And so the war on children, the war on marriage, the war on sexuality, the war on the church, all of these beautiful gifts given to us by God the Father for our good and for our flourishing, all of these beautiful gifts are hated by the enemy of our souls, and so we have a battle to fight. The New Testament makes it very clear, however, that it is unlike any other battle we have ever engaged because it's not a physical battle. Ephesians 6 says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And 2 Corinthians 10 says, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And so because we know that people are not actually the enemy, then we approach our conversations differently. We're doing battle in ways not the way the world does. Vitriol and venom are the language of our day. You know this as well as I do. Outrage seems to be the driving force behind so many armchair Twitter warriors, if you will. And Jude's overall intent, the the tone of this book is actually overall positive when he says, I'm calling you to contend and to wrestle and to struggle to display godliness in the face of ungodliness. 
to display mercy in the midst of a merciless culture, to snatch people from the fire of unbelief and not be burnt yourself. And Jude says that our defense will be established in very practical ways. Build yourself up in your most holy faith and pray in the spirit. And I wonder if we did just those two things, if we said simply, we want to build ourselves up in our faith and we want to pray in the spirit, what might God accomplish? And so you've heard our mission statement over and over again, that we exist to help people become deeply rooted followers of Jesus. And we gather together consistently to look upward, to lift our eyes to the sovereign king, to refocus our minds and our hearts and our attention on the sovereign Lord of the universe, to call out of our daily lives and the the busyness and the chaos to simply recenter our lives upward onto the sovereign king in worship. And we also gather to be reminded that we're not alone in this. That there are literally thousands of people across our city and gospel-centered congregations all over the city that share this same passion and this same heart. And we intentionally turn inward. We look for places where we can grow deeper, deep roots down into God's word and down into community. And as we challenge you uh, last year, and we're challenging you again this year, if you have never read through the Bible from cover to cover, if you have not done that yet in your lifetime, or if you've done it before and you want to join us, we're asking you join us this year. Make 2024 the year that you would literally, from cover to cover, there's a simple Bible reading program, download the app or pick up the paper copy of it. Join us in getting the word of God into your life so that you've got deep roots. We intentionally look inward for those opportunities to grow. And then finally, we turn our eyes outward. As we go out of these doors into the community and the world, the 24-7s where we spend the majority of our time. Like we gather for an hour on the weekend. We might gather with a community group or Bible study for an hour or two. We might meet with some Christian friends. But the majority of our life, the majority of our 24-7s are lived out on the streets of our city. And we acknowledge that the weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of this world. We attack strongholds of the enemy on our knees. And we cry out for people that we know and love who are far from God. Uh, One of the things we've been challenging the last two or three years, and we printed a new copy for 2024, is this simple idea of praying five-by-five prayers. Five people that you know and love. You already know them and you already love them, but they're far from God. And you know the only way they're going to be turned to God is if the Spirit of God does some work in your life. So would you simply commit yourself five minutes a day, five days of the week, to remind yourself to pray for these people? You can pick up one of these cards. You can write your own. doesn't matter. Just get praying for people the promises of God over their life. We know it is not God's will that any should perish. And so we say, Lord God, these people, we love them. Would you move in their lives? And so Jude articulates our defense, our offense, our counterattack. Build yourself up and pray in the spirit. Keep yourself in the love of God. Wait patiently. These are our strategies. But friends, to be honest, we're not actually up for that assignment, if we're honest. And I am so glad that Jude did not finish his book at verse 23. Because if he did, it might make us feel like it was all up to us. And I know myself well enough that even though there are some good desires in this heart of mine, that left to myself, I simply can't keep up with everything that Jude lays out here and seems to expect of me in moving this ball down the field. And I am so glad that he gives us the reminder of the guarantee that we're not in this battle alone, that there is one who will keep us. 
Verse 24 and 25, and now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. There is one who has his eyes on us. Remember how the book started? He's writing to people who are called and loved and kept. And now as he closes the book, he reminds him, there is one who is able to keep you. And as we look at the state of our nation, and as we see the craziness of a culture that was built on Judeo-Christian values and now is aggressively and intentionally dismantling those very foundations, and we sometimes might wonder, will the church be the last institution standing for the truth? It might be easy for us to slip into despair. But friends, I've got to tell you that I have great hope for where God is taking us in the days to come. I honestly do. In the last year or two, you need to know there are hundreds and hundreds of new folks who are showing up regularly to sit under the Word of God. In the last 12 months or so, we've baptized over 200 people making public professions of their faith, and I know there's a lineup for the new class already. At our AGM in November, I, I shared three verses that I sensed the Lord impressing on, on my heart as your pastor. One was from Revelation chapter 3, and it says this, Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And read in its context, and actually we're going to study that context in the summer months, it's a promise to the church at Philadelphia. Lord, it is you alone who opens and closes the doors of opportunity. In the context, it says you're trying to build the church literally in Satan's backyard, is what this text says. And I know your struggle, and I know that you're facing a lot of opposition, and I know that you feel like you have very little power, but take heart because I've set before you an open door that nobody can shut. And if the post-COVID world has shown us anything, it has shown us that we have a wide open door of opportunity. Now, I'll tell you this, and you know this to be true, that COVID did a number on the Canadian church. So pre-COVID, the religious stats would tell us that between 11 and 15%, depending on who you were looking at and what study you were looking at, between 11 and 15% of Canadians were involved in religious services of all stripes and breeds on a consistent basis. And this includes all world religions, not just Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc. all the cults and all the stripes and breeds of Christians, Catholics, Protestants, Evangelicals, Charismatics, etc. If you parse down the numbers just to uh, Evangelicals, it's a small number, 15%-ish. Post-COVID, last year's study, 2023, Evangelical Fellowship of Canada and Angus Reid, that number now stands at 7%. All world religions, not Christian 7%, all world religions. If you parse out the evangelical numbers, it's only about 1.5% of Canadians. The church took a hit. But turn those stats around, and what does it tell us? It tells us we have a wide open door of opportunity. It tells us there's a big market share out there, does it not? Those of you who are in business, there is a large target audience for us now. I'm uh, part of a fellowship. It's called the Canadian Large Church Lead Pastors Fellowship. What a funky name. Actually, Pastor Vern Heidebrecht was part of it years ago. It kind of went away. It's come back again. We meet a couple times a year. And what I'm discovering is where churches are faithfully maintaining orthodox biblical teaching, faithfully proclaiming Jesus as the hope of the world, that they are continuing to grow. Uh, so the last time we met in November, there were only nine of us because of the Christmas season and travels and whatnot. Five evangelical groups represented among the nine. 
And every church in that circle was experiencing a resurgence and growth post-COVID. Three of those churches were in the middle of building programs, and two others, us included, are headed into building programs, planning to expand and make room for more people. Uh, so earlier, I mentioned that book, The Great Dechurching. The subtitle, and I don't know if you can read it up there in the fine print, is Who's Leaving? Why Are They Going? And the final question, What It Will Take to Bring Them Back. It's a hopeful book. And what the research project showed these people is that the majority of people who have left, those tens of millions, are actually just casually de-churched, they said. Most of them would still say they believe in God. In fact, they would check the boxes of Orthodox Christianity, but life somehow got busy. The kids' weekend sports interfered with church attendance. Maybe they moved to a new neighborhood or city. Maybe their local church was not as vibrant as they wanted it to be. There was a sense of meh. And then you add a global pandemic on top of it. And for two years, the majority of Christians in North America did not attend a single service for two full years. They simply got out of the habit. The good news is, when they're asked what it would take to bring them back again, most of them said all it would take is a simple invitation from a friend. Just invite me along. Now, friends, I don't know if Christmas Eve 2023 told us anything, but for those of you who are here that day, what I realized is there, there is still a residual spiritual interest and hunger in this community. We hosted 12 services across three locations, Downs, Mission, and East. And over 8,400 people showed up. It's double, double the numbers of a normal weekend. And if it tells us anything, there is still a residual interest in spiritual things. Many of them came because they were invited by a family or a friend. Others who had absolutely no connection to Northview showed up. One couple who said they were simply driving by this particular location. They saw all the cars in the parking lot and thought, turned in. We should just go. Others who haven't been in church, one guy literally for decades, and he said, it was time the Spirit of God just laid on my heart, I've got to be here. And you might be saying, well, so what? Well, so what? I honestly believe that some of the best days for fruitful ministry lay ahead of us, and that one of the areas of low-hanging fruit are those friends that we all know, friends that you and I all know who used to be part of a local church but have drifted away. The second verse the Lord laid on my heart was simply this, Luke 12, that everyone to whom much was given, of him much is required. And there's no question that Northview has been richly blessed by God in every way. We have an amazing 43-year history of sound Bible teaching, strong theological foundations. We've been blessed with abundant material resources. And so you ask yourself the question, to whom much is given, much is required. And so in the coming months, you're going to hear us talking about things ahead of us, global missions opportunities, church planning opportunities across the country. Here in the valley, we're going to be talking about potentially planting in Chilliwack, planting in Maple Ridge. Our development team is already looking at the facilities needs over at the mission campus because some of you may not know this, but that campus is busting at the seams, meeting in what was built to be a gymnasium, overflowing with people to whom much is given, much is required. And finally, Philippians 4.19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
And what it tells me is that for all the challenges and the opportunities we have in front of us, we actually have a guarantee given to us that whatever God calls us to do, if he has called us to do it, then he promises to supply every need we have. In other words, the workers we need will come because we will pray them out and God will send them out. The theological training and resources that we need will be there to take advantage of. And the financial needs to advance, whether it's church planting or global missions or every dollar we need simply to build buildings and keep the lights on and run the programs, every dollar we need will come to us from his hand. Amen? It's a promise. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. And so Douglas Moo says this, Christians have many reasons to be anxious, but one thing we do not need to be worried about is God's faithfulness in maintaining us in our faith. Amen? So Jude reminds us, verse 1, you are called, you are loved, and you are kept. And I don't know where the start of another new year finds you, but I can tell you that I think I am perhaps more encouraged than I have ever been in 35 years of ministry experience, and I can say that with all honesty. And yes, the days are dark around us, but here's the promise. In the darkness, the light of Jesus shines even brighter. And thank God that it's not up to us. That there is one who is able to keep us from falling. There is one who will present us blameless before his presence. I like the older translation with exceeding great joy. And to him, unto him, and to him, and for him, unto him be glory and majesty, dominion and power, and unto him we live our lives. So why don't you stand with me, Mission East and everybody here, stand with me. I want to pray for you. The teams will come and lead us. And so, Lord Jesus, as we go into another new year, and we know it's simply the turning of a page on a calendar, but it's a time for us to pause and think, to think about our lives, uh, the joys and the sorrows of the year gone by, and what we would hope and pray for in the year to come. And Father, as we think about marriage and family and work and all the details of our life, an aspect of our life is our spiritual journey. And Lord Jesus, in this year, 2024, we would come before you as a people and say, we are hungry for you, God. We are desperately thirsty for you. We need to drink at your well and eat at your living bread that you give to us to sustain us. And Lord Jesus, we are also so desperate to see you move across our country. We confess, Lord, our own sin and the sins of our people that we have forsaken you. We've forsaken the well of living water and we've drilled empty cisterns, broken cisterns that don't hold water. And so, Lord, would you do a gracious work among us? Would you sweep across this nation and call men and women back to you? Lord, we pray for the tens of thousands of people who used to be part of good churches and have simply drifted. Many of them are our friends that we know and love. And we pray even in this year that you would give us opportunities to welcome them back. And then, Lord Jesus, we pray for the millions who have actually never heard the gospel in a way clear enough that they could reject it. And so we're praying, Lord, for gospel ministries to flourish across this nation, that the pulpit would be strengthened, that everything from Sunday schools right up to seniors' fellowships, that the gospel would be clearly declared in every community across our nation. Under your glory and our joy, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.